Welcome to Scary Bedtime Stories. I'm your host, Jose, and I will be your guide, your Morpheus into the world of dreams. The goal of this podcast is to help you fall asleep by relaxing you, taking your restless mind off your problems, and help you get the rest that you deserve while I read to you a horror classic. I promise it won't be too scary. We just crossed over 1,000 listens of this podcast. Thank you to everyone who joins me on this journey each week and allows me to put you to sleep with a horror classic. It will help me so much if you leave me a review. And if this helps you sleep, tell a friend. I also do another podcast called Technically a Conversation with my lovely co-hosts Isela and Elena. We love to cover weird and creepy topics and make you laugh in the process. A link will be in the show notes or go to technicallyaconversation.com. We're going to tune out the outside world. That's the gentle rain and music you hear in the background. Hopefully, that'll be enough to drown out your neighbor's barking dog or your shade tree mechanic neighbor who wakes up way too early to work on their car dropping tools and the compressor turning on all loud outside your window. Put this episode on repeat or make a playlist of several episodes while we wait for the Sandman to rub some sleep in your eyes. Every time your mind drifts away, focus on my voice and on the story. With all that out of the way, let's get started. Make yourself comfortable in your bed. Flip that pillow around to the cool side and relax your breathing. Smear some Vicks under your nose and focus on how soft and cool your sheets are. Today, I'll be reading you How He Left the Hotel by Louisa Baldwin. I used to work the passenger lift in the Empire Hotel, that big block of building and lines of red and white brick like streaky bacon that stands at the corner of Bath Street. I had served my time in the army and got my discharge with good conduct stripes. And how I got the job was in this way. The hotel was a big company affair with a managing committee of retired officers and such like gentlemen with a bit of money in the concern and nothing to do but fidget about it and my late colonel was one of them. He was as good-tempered a man as ever stepped when his will wasn't crossed. And when I asked him for a job, Mole, says he, you're the very man to work the lift at our big hotel. Soldiers are civil and business-like, and the public like them, only second best to sailors. We've had to give our last man the sack, and you can take his place. I liked my work well enough and my pay and kept my place a year. And I should have been there still if it hadn't been for a circumstance, but more about that just now. Ours was a hydraulic lift. None of them rickety things swung up like a pole parrot cage in a well staircase that I shouldn't care to trust my neck to. It ran as smooth as oil. A child might have worked it, and safe as standing on the ground. Instead of being stuck full of advertisements like an omnibus 
with mirrors in it, and the ladies would look at themselves and pat their hair and set their mouths when I was taking them downstairs, dressed of an evening. It was a little sitting room with red velvet cushions to sit down on, and you'd nothing to do but get into it, and it'd float you up or float you down as light as a bird. All the visitors used the lift one time or another, going up or coming down. Some of them was French, and they called the lift the ascensor, and good enough for them in their language, no doubt. But why the Americans that can't speak English when they choose, and are always finding out ways of doing things quicker than other folks, should waste time and breath calling a lift an elevator, I can't make out. I was in charge of the lift from noon till midnight. By the time the theater and dining out folks had come in, and anyone returning later walked upstairs, for my day's work was done. One of the porters worked the lift till I came on duty in the morning. But before 12, there was nothing particular going on, and not much till after 2 o'clock. Then it was pretty hot work with visitors going up and down constant, and the electric bell ringing you from one floor to another, like a house on fire. Then came a quiet spell while dinner was on, and I'd sit down comfortable in the lift and read my paper. Only, I mightn't smoke, but nobody else might neither, and I had to ask fern gentlemen to please not smoke in it. It was against the rule. I hadn't so often to tell English gentlemen. They're not like foreigners that seem as if their cigars was glued to their lips. I always noticed faces as folks got into the lift, for I've sharp sight and a good memory, and none of the visitors needed to tell me twice where to take them. I knew them, and I knew their floor as well as they did themselves. It was in November that Colonel Saxby came to the Empire Hotel. I noticed him particularly because you could see at once that he was a soldier. He was a tall, thin man, about 50, with a hawk nose, keen eaves, and a gray mustache, and walked stiff from a gunshot wound in the knee. But what I noticed most was the scar of a saber cut across the right side of the face as he got in the lift to go to his room on the fourth floor. I thought, what a difference there is among officers. Colonel Saxby put me in mind of a telegraph post for height and thinness, and my old colonel was like a barrel in uniform, but a brave soldier and a gentleman all the same. Colonel Saxby's room was number 210, just opposite the glass door leading to the lift, and every time I stopped on the fourth floor, number 210 stared me in the face. The colonel used to go up in the lift every day regular, though he never came down in it, till, but I'm coming to that presently. Sometimes, when we was alone in the lift, he'd speak to me. He asked me in what regiment I served, and said he knew the officers in it, but I can't say he was comfortable to talk to. There was something stand off about him, and he always seemed deep in his own thoughts. 
He never sat down in the lift. Whether it was empty or full, he stood bolt upright under the lamp where the light fell on his pale face and scarred cheek. One day in February, I didn't take the colonel up in the lift, and as he was regular as clockwork, I noticed it. But I suppose he'd gone away for a few days, and I thought no more about it. Whenever I stopped on the fourth floor, the door of number 210 was shut, and as he often left it open, I made sure the colonel was away. At the end of the week, I heard a chambermaid say that Colonel Saxby was ill, so thinks I that's why he hadn't been in the lift lately. It was a Tuesday night, and I'd had an uncommonly busy time of it. It was one stream of traffic up and down, and so it went on the whole evening. It was on the stroke of midnight, and I was about to put out the light in the lift, lock the door, and leave the key in the office for the man in the morning when the electric bell rang out sharp. I looked at the dial and saw I was wanted on the fourth floor. It struck 12 as I stepped into the lift. As I passed the second and third floors, I wondered who it was that had rang so late and thought it must be a stranger that didn't know the rule of the house. But when I stopped at the fourth floor, and flung open the door of the lift, Colonel Saxby was standing there wrapped in his military cloak. His room door was shut behind them, for I read the number on it. I thought he was ill in his bed, and ill enough he looked, but he had his hat on, and what could a man that had been in bed ten days want with going out on a winter midnight? I don't think he saw me, but when I'd set the lift in motion, I looked at him standing under the lamp with the shadow of his hat hiding his eyes and the light full on the lower part of his face that was deadly pale, the scar on his cheek showing still paler. Glad to see you're better, sir, but he said nothing and I didn't take to look at him again. He stood like a statue with his cloak about him and I was downright glad when I opened the door for him to step out into the hall. I saluted as he got out, and he went past me towards the door. The colonel wants to go out, I said to the porter who stood staring. He opened the front door, and Colonel Saxby walked out into the snow. That's a queer go, said the porter. It is, said I. I don't like the colonel's looks. He doesn't seem himself at all. He's ill enough to be in his bed. And there he is, gone out on a night like this. Anyhow, he's got a famous cloak to keep him warm. I say, supposing he's gone to a fancy ball and got that cloak on to hide his dress, said the porter, laughing uneasily. For we both felt queerer than we cared to say. And as we spoke, there came a loud ring at the doorbell. No more passengers for me, I said, and I was really putting the lights out this time. When Joe opened the door, and two gentlemen entered that I knew at a glance were doctors. One was tall, and the other short and stout, and they both came to the lift. Sorry, gentlemen, 
but it's against the rule for the lift to go up after midnight. Nonsense, said the stout gentleman. It's only past twelve, and it's a matter of life and death. Take us up at once to the fourth floor. And they were in the lift like a shot. When I opened the door, they went straight to number 210. A nurse came out to meet them, and the stout doctor said, No change for the worse, I hope. And I heard her reply, The patient died five minutes ago, sir. Though I had no business to speak, that was more than I could stand. I followed the doctors to the door and said, There's some mistake here, gentlemen. I took the colonel down in the lift since the clock struck 12, and he went out. The stout doctor said sharply, A case of mistaken identity. It was someone else you took for the colonel. Begging your pardon, gentlemen, it was the colonel himself, and the night porter that opened the door for him knew him as well as me. He was dressed for a night like this, with his military cloak wrapped around him. Step in and see for yourself, said the nurse. I followed the doctors into the room, and there lay Colonel Saxby, looking just as I'd seen him a few minutes before. There he lay, dead as his forefathers, and the gray cloak spread over the bed to keep him warm that would feel heat and cold no more. I never slept that night. I sat up with Joe, expecting every minute to hear the colonel ring the front doorbell. Next day, every time the bell for the lift rang sharp and sudden, the sweat broke out on me and I shook again. I felt as bad as I did the first time I was in action. Me and Joe told the manager all about it and he said we'd been dreaming, but said he, mind you, don't you talk about it or the house will be empty in a week. The colonel's coffin was smuggled into the house the next night. Me and the manager and the undertaker's men took it up in the lift and it lay right across it and not an inch to spare. They carried it into number 210 and while I waited for them to come out again, a queer feeling came over me. Then the door opened softly and six men carried out the long coffin straight across the passage and set it down with its foot towards the door of the lift, and the manager looked round for me. I can't do it, sir, I said. I can't take the colonel down again. I took him down at midnight yesterday, and that was enough for me. Push it in, said the manager, speaking short and sharp, and they ran the coffin into the lift without a sound. The manager got in last, and before he closed the door, he said, Mole, you've worked this lift for the last time, it strikes me. And I had, for I wouldn't have staved on at the Empire Hotel after what had happened. Not if they doubled my wages, and me and the night porter left together. This concludes How We Left the Hotel by Louisa Baldwin. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we'll start a new story. If you enjoyed the podcast and it helped you sleep, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, and leave me a review. You can also follow me on all the socials at Scary Bedtime and listen to my other podcast, Technically a Conversation, 
at technicallyaconversation.com. All the links will be in the show notes. Have a good night.